Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continued trek through the history of baseball, one conversation at a time. If you're just finding us today, if the name of the gentleman who is joining me is the reason you click play, thanks for that. I hope you end up coming back in weeks to come and perhaps look at the list of previous episodes and find a few that might interest you enough to hit the subscribe button and listen. If you're coming back for this one after being a regular or making your way through some of the episodes when you can, thanks again. I hope at some point, if you enjoy what you're hearing, you might tell a few friends or family members who are interested in hearing both the baseball and social stories that these men lived through and now have an opportunity to tell through social media or just an old-fashioned text or phone call. And if you can, would appreciate if you can hit that subscribe button and perhaps rate and write a quick review if you listen on Apple or iTunes. It helps spread the word for reasons I don't understand, I was told it would be smart to put forth the ask, so there it is. As some of you know, these are hopefully, when done right, just two men who have settled into a couple of comfortable chairs and just try to find a conversational groove. Believe me, I've never lost sight of the fact that these men have opened up a door after I knocked and have invited me, us, into their world, some looking back just handfuls of years and others looking back on moments four, five, six decades ago. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed doing these and how much I am now enjoying catching up with some old friends like today's guest. A little different today, and a moment of truth that pains me still to this day. You will hear in a couple of seconds a few minutes of a conversation I have with Frank Howard from 20 years ago. While I'm glad I have it, the truth is that more than half of this original conversation is lost forever, trapped in a website that no longer exists as if some sort of 2001 technological black hole. So instead of crying, okay, I might have, don't judge. And I thought about other conversations that suffered the same fate. I decided to buck up and try to make it right. So I took a chance. I called Frank. And not only did he pick up, he quickly became the Frank Howard I remember, overly generous with his time. And after I told him the following story, he told me, and I quote, I must have made an impression on him if he offered me a smoke. Here's that story. First time I met Frank was in West Palm Beach, spring 1996. While I had gone to Braves camp for a few days in 1994, 1996 was my first full-time year covering spring training. Parked in a West Palm Beach motel for five weeks. Recently leaving chiropractic school as a student in good standing with three quarters left to go. I never went back. To really commit to radio after going to school full-time and working on the radio full-time here in Atlanta for the three previous years. Braves-Mets game. It's going to start a little late because of rain. I'd spoken to Frank for a few minutes earlier in the morning And when the official word came down that play ball was going to be delayed, he saw me behind the Braves' dugout and waved to me. 
I had asked if we might be able to catch up post-game to talk for a few minutes about his career, and I guess he figured this time might work for both of us. So I took my recorder and microphone down to third baseline as Frank was walking out to the left field area. Funny thing is, he kept walking past where I thought we were going to do this. I swear, while some of this is fuzzy, I do remember we ended up in a shed, like a tool shed, the kind that held lawnmowers, rakes, lime, and that piece of equipment that lines the field. So we're standing in a shed as he breaks out a heater. And again, I swear, he told me to keep this between us. He had some heart thing, and the Mets coaching staff wouldn't allow him to smoke in front of them or around them. And then he offered me a stick. Frank Howard, in his full Met uniform, offered me a cigarette. I didn't take it. By the way, that's a top three or four regret in the 27 years I've been covering sports. But we did talk. And while I have no idea what that tape is, bothers me still, I do remember he was very self-effacing about his career, his talent, how he was just trying to get by in the majors for most of his time spent in it. Fast forward 25 years, 25 years, a March Sunday in 2021, and Frank and I got together again, and nothing other than our ages had changed. His talent, 382 home runs, 1,100-plus RBI, Rookie of the Year in 1960, two top-five MVP seasons. I think it was four-time All-Star, all worth talking about. Thought so highly of, he has a statue outside of the Nationals' ballpark, a beautiful piece of art imposing his six-foot-eight frame and his power captured in bronze. So when I asked if he would like to help me make it right, to make up for my stupidity for not having our previous conversations ready to put out as a podcast, he said he would love to talk with his words, an old friend. Problem is, Frank doesn't do much talking about Frank. The good news is he does want to talk about others, how great today's athletes are, how great some of the men he played with and against were, how he learned from so many, but a few in particular that he felt compelled to expound on. He's 84 years old and perhaps more beloved than ever in the baseball community. He is still known as a gentle giant to those who knew him back then. Oh, and Hondo, too, a nickname that was given to him by his Washington teammates in his first time up in 1958, a callback to a John Wayne character from a 1953 movie of the same name. Wait, the man is so imposing, he was also known as the Capital Punisher. That's a great nickname. Those are hard to find these days. And fitting as the Senators would paint seats white where his home runs landed, so far from home plate that most couldn't really comprehend that these were real markers of his exploits. Last thing, I posted on Twitter today that this episode was going to be dropping tonight. It was accompanied by a picture of Frank. Senator's jersey, short, short sleeves, and those arms just spilling out of it. Chipper Jones saw it and put it best. That's a bad man with five A's between the B and D. And as I said, that tweet, well, I'm still smiling a full day after I recorded this. Frank Howard has that effect on people. Here he is, Frank Howard. And along comes the jolly giant from Washington they call the Capital Punisher. The pitch is a curve.
were joined by a man who, well, when 40 home runs really meant something, this guy was doing it, and he did it pretty regularly there for a few years. He is Frank Howard, and he joins us tonight on Legends of the Game. Mr. Howard, how are you today? Great, Chris. How are you doing? Very good, sir. Now, when I introduced you, I mentioned when 40 home runs meant something. I am not discounting what 40 home runs is today, but it does happen a little bit more frequently today than it used to when you were playing. Well, I tell you, Chris, we've got uh, we've got bigger, stronger athletes overall than we had 30, 40 years ago. Uh, the great players, the Aarons and the Mazes and the Frankie Robinsons and the Mantles, they would have played in any era. But today's young athlete, uh, he's, first of all, he's better educated. He has access to more data and utilizes that data much more so than we ever thought about. They have year-round conditioning programs. They, uh, uh, you know, you look at today's athlete, most of them, their body fat's under 10%. Uh, uh, my peers sometimes disagree with me. I, I mean, I'll be the first to admit with 30 clubs as opposed to 16, certainly uh, uh, your, your, your team-to-team depth is probably a little thinner. But it doesn't detract from what some of these great young players are doing today. I, you know, I, I look around and I, and I, and I see this uh, uh, Mark McGuire, 6'5", 260 pounds, and, I mean, there's not an ounce of fat on him, Barry Bonds who is the maze of the 90s, uh, Griffey, who is the mantle of the 90s and the millennium. They're six foot four. they're, you know, 220 pounds. Uh, now, today, we have a tendency not to give today's ball player enough credit. Now, you're still around the game, but let's talk about size. I believe you came in at about 6'8". How many, were you the tallest player in the major leagues when well, you were I'm playing? Well, sure yeah. I'm sure I was. Uh, you know, Normally, you know, uh, 30 years ago, I would be considered almost a freak, uh, you know, because most ball players are six foot one, six foot, six foot two. Uh, but the, in today's game, you know, we, like I say, we're having to, uh, we haven't, we got a lot of guys six foot five, six mm-hmm. foot six playing. Now, you were a basketball player at Ohio State, All American, I believe, in both basketball and baseball. Were you drafted by the NBA? No, I, uh, we didn't have the draft. Oh, by the NBA? Yeah. Well, yes, I, I was. But I was already in pro ball, and uh, and my first uh, contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers stipulated that I would only try to go uh, one way. I, I, to be honest with you, Chris, I, I think had I chosen basketball, I would have played in the NBA. Had I chose baseball because it was my love, and I played in the major leagues. Had I tried to go both ways, I don't think I would have made it in either sport. I, I think that I've read Auerbach, uh, who is a man 50 years ahead of his time. I remember in 1965 we were talking, and and he said, well, you know, Frank, we were with the Celtics. We wanted to draft you. We were our type of player, but uh, we knew you were going to play pro baseball. And he says the day of the multi-sport athlete he thought was coming to a close, even in the middle 60s, he thought that, if a guy or a, uh, a man wants to choose a, a professional sports as a career, I think he's got to find, number one, the game that he loves the best and then devote his entire energies and his entire drive to acquiring that goal. Now, what kind of player do you think you would have been in the NBA? Well, you, then I would have been a strong forward. Now I'm not big enough to even <laughs> play a point guard. There again, you know, you've got, uh, you know, it's, Forty years ago, you, you had maybe a handful of guys consistently play above the rim. Uh, now everybody does. Uh, uh, you, you got point guards that are uh, six foot one or two that, that are leaping right out of the gymnasium. 
Uh, and there's no equipment. You, you got better equipment. You got better year-round conditioning programs. Uh, you, you you get your your athletes today that that uh, they don't take much time off. I mean, their season's over. They might take a, a month uh, to kick back and relax, but then they get right back into the grind of of training and. Uh, and it behooves them with today's salary structure. Uh, it behooves a kid to take better care of himself. Why do you think you like baseball better than basketball? I don't know. You know, and I was probably really at that stage a much better basketball player than was baseball player. I, really, I would think I, that I loved baseball. I didn't know much about it. Would basketball have been more of a sure thing professionally for you? Do you think? Well, but you know, forty-five, fifty years ago, at that time, the best salary structure for an athlete was in baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, now certainly these other games have, have their 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 structure uh, economically has risen to the point where you know if the kid's got a basketball ability he becomes a wealthy man same way in baseball or the NFL or anything else golf tennis soccer um, but uh, do you think it was an upbringing thing that you were more attuned to enjoy baseball? I think baseball? so. I think so. Uh, you know, baseball was the game mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, where did you grow up? In Columbus, Ohio. So you were an Ohio State guy. You were um, right in your own guy. backyard. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, was that a pretty easy choice for you? Well, yeah, it was. Uh, I was. Uh, there were really probably only three or four major schools that were. My skills were very crude at that time, and uh, there were only three or four major school uh, schools that were, you know, interested in recruiting me. Um, I had a chance to go down to North Carolina State with uh, Vic Bubas, who I consider one of the great athletic directors and coaches of our time. Uh, and uh, he said, give me the opportunity to play both ways, baseball and basketball. But, uh, you know, they aren't going to let too many Columbus boys get out of their backyard <laughs> if they can help it. Now, what kind of high school baseball player were you? You know, believe it or not, uh, uh, there again, uh, you know, crude. Uh, I was... Uh, Started out as a shortstop, and I outgrew it, and uh, later went to third base and did a little pitching. But uh, um, I, I, I probably, if I guess there were a few organizations that were interested in signing me out of high school, but uh, I, my, you know, my development at that stage was mm-hmm. way back. I might not even made out a pro ball. So a couple of years of college. Uh, uh, really helped me refine my skills to the point where, you know, I signed and went into pro ball. Talking to Frank Howard tonight on Legends of the Game on Front Ball. And, Mr. Howard, I'm always curious because, uh, you know, bat, the idea of what type of bat to use has certainly changed, and you're still around the game today. What size bat did you use for most of your career? Well, I use a 37-inch, a 35-ounce uh, bat. Uh, Do they even make those today? Oh, I doubt it. You know, t- well, today, you know, we had, uh, there again, when you, you're talking about different errors, and, and, and the, I think we probably had as many or more hard throwers that relied on their fastball in those days. Uh, but you had basically a three- or four-pitch pitcher, fastball, slider, curveball, change. Today, uh, Today's pitchers got two types of fastballs, a four-seam fastball rider, two-seam sinker. They've got two different speeds of the slider, two different speeds of a, of a curveball, or two different types of changes. I think it's a little tougher hitting today, and I think as a result, I think guys have gone to lighter bats only because it allows them that luxury of waiting to the last possible second before they release their Do swing. you think if somebody would have explained that to you back in your day, you would have bought into that, that whole lighter bat? bat well, I, I think, I, I think if, if I were playing today, 
and had to face the, the the type of pitchers that they have today, I think I probably would have gone to a lighter bat. But what if somebody told you in 1960, hey, Frank, you know, that bat's too big, whatever too big means. Do you think you would have bought into that whole theory of smaller bat? Oh, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Because I'd imagine at 6'8", your hands are probably bigger where handle, I know a lot of guys like to use the whip it, thin handle. Uh, I'm assuming 37, 35, you had a pretty pretty good size handle on that. Well, it, it was a medium, medium handle. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was that R43. I think that's the Babe Ruth model. And uh, my team, my old team, Moose Cowan, got me using it. And I, I thought I had great balance, and, and uh, it was something I could handle. Talking to Frank Howard tonight. Now let's talk about some of your teammates, the L.A. Dodgers in 1958, the first year they move out to Los Angeles. And you guys do win the World Series in 63. You had, uh, you had a couple of teammates of note in those first early years. Well, you know, the, the, the Koufaxes and the Drysdales and the Snyders, uh, uh, they fit into that category, Chris, and I don't want to sound self-depreciating, but they fit into that category. That they, uh, those type of players, the Aarons and the Mazes, and you go on and name a thousand guys, uh, they play a level or two above us mere mortals. And, uh, the, but to grow up uh, being associated with them, and they teach you how to conduct yourself as a big league player, uh, what to give the clubhouse man based on what you know your salary you're making, uh, how to handle your equipment and take care of it and not embarrass them by throwing it all over the clubhouse. They, I think they give you the, the the big league way of carrying yourself and and big league is not only ability, but I think it's the way you interact with people. It's the uh, uh, you know it's the way you interact with the fans, the press, uh, um, and I know that you. Know, there again, a lot of your super players, uh, they're hammered all the time, besieged all the time. I know that gets a little weary, mm-hmm. um, but it goes with the territory. And most of them, and I think in today's business, I think most of them handle it very well. You know, I watched McGuire when he was uh, breaking that record and the way he conducted himself on uh, radio, TV, things like that. And I thought to myself, boy, some of his mom and dad has done a great job of raising this guy. He, uh, I thought he handled it very well. Um, and Do you remember I, in the middle of Roger Maris's assault in '61? Obviously, you weren't in the. the no, I was in the National League. Right, but do you remember? Were players? I mean, were you talking about that nightly? Were you keeping your own little watch? If it wasn't as big, a I media think push? I, I think when it got to mid mid August, mm-hmm. uh, and, and and you know, it's the same way with Bonds. You know, uh, uh, this man's just—he's a phenomenal player. He's just a phenomenal player, and but I, I think you get to the middle of August, and he's pushing. If he's pushing 58 or 60 mm-hmm. in the middle of August, then, then you've got something that's going to keep the baseball world buzzing on a daily basis. I think it's probably still a little too early to, to, to put a lot of pressure on him or to try to take him out of his, his mold, you know, his everyday mold. Do you remember how, how nervous were you when you put on your Major League uniform for the first time? Well, you, you know, I only played a year and a half in the minor leagues, and, and like I said, I really, uh, I really didn't know that much about baseball. Did you think the you were ready? Good pitchers, the, 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 the real professional, this Robin Roberts and the Spawns, and those guys that are really artists out there. Uh, they, you know, they can make a young, inexperienced hitter uh, make him look like he's never played the game of baseball. But uh, certainly, there's a. There, I think the. Two toughest years for any big league player. Number one is first year, where most of us, where most of us, maybe have a little apprehension or doubt about whether we can compete successfully at that level. 
And then the last year, when he's starting to lose his reflex mm-hmm. or has lost his reflexes, and he can't do some of the things he did in the, in the uh, best years of his and life. And you know what's really strange, Mr. Howard? Isn't the, the common thread between those two years the idea of being found out? You're just afraid you're going to be found out that you're not supposed to be doing this? No, I don't think so. I, I You know, I, I don't think that uh, to give yourself any chance, any chance at success, I think you've got to have absolute confidence in your ability, even when things are going real tough for you. And they, they, they go tough for all of us. You know, as, like I said, I've been two for 22 all my life. Uh, but it, it's that that's where I think the mind and, and the fire and your belly and, and your heart comes out. Uh, in, in the development of today's young players, you know, if you look at a feeder system, let's say you've got 150 ball players in your, in your farm system, roughly 10.8% is going to make it to the big league. So that's 15 players. Uh, five of them are probably going to have a cup of coffee, up and down, up and down. Five of them are probably going to have fill a uh, spot role or a utility-type role, and five of them are going to have an impact on your ball club. But the ones that do make it, besides having skills, major, what we call major league skills or above-average major league skills, the ones that make it are those guys that uh, I think are totally focused about the game of baseball. I think they're, uh, they've got a mental toughness about them that, that nobody is going to beat them or no, you know, nobody's going to keep from being a, a top performer at that level. And I think that's the thing that the that, that young man's got to either, um, and it can be developed, I think through concentration and I think through uh, uh, paying attention to, to your business, I think you can develop a mental toughness. I mean, I, I've sit and seen so many great players, and and their their concentration spans are so enormous and so, uh, uh, and they're consistent day in and day out. Were Were you a guest hitter? No, well, no, no. But after after you're in the league, you'll have a pretty good idea of what a, how a guy's been pitching. If he's had success getting you out, he's going to stay with the same type of pitches, the same pattern. If you've had a little luck with him, why, uh, chances are he's going to change his location, maybe change the sequence of pitches to you. We call it a guessing game. Ted Williams called it a figuring game. But when you when you hit 344 lifetime, why, it's pretty good figure. <laughs> now, you, though, hold uh, a major league record. I think that's it's still yours and yours alone. You hit 10 home runs in a 20-at-bat stretch over a six-game period, correct? Yes. Is is that describable to, as you would say, a, a mere mortal such as myself? Well, as to what that that, one is? that's one week where I, where I could say I played with the big boys. Um, you'd like to have had, you know, I'd like to have had uh, ten or twelve streaks like that in my career. But uh, well, nobody has streaks like that in their career. Well, that's the point. Want, uh, a couple writers call me, uh, Chris, uh, when Bonds, right. well, he had what nine and yep. six games when he was pushing it. And like, it's like I try to explain it, you know, in those days you had two radio and television guys. You had to, uh, you had two guys that covered you in the media, the papers. Uh, you know, nobody thought much about things like that. Uh, but today, with all your media attention and the enormous uh, uh, media focus, uh, it's uh, you know, it's 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 in the uh, it's in on the front page and on the news every night and. Uh, and a guy asked me, would it, you know, would have upset you if, if he hit 11 in six games? Not at all. 
Not at all. We've got, uh, like I said, we've got great young people playing our game today, and records are made to be broken. And if he hit 11, uh, nobody had been happier for him than me. Now, his father is a pretty good friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, like I said, the, the young man comes from pretty good bloodlines. And uh, I don't I met met Barry, but I just a couple of years ago when I was coaching the National League, but but I knew his father very well. And jeez, uh, you know when you see that kind of talent out there and some of the things that he does, or not only him, but all these great players doing a baseball field, it's uh, it, it certainly wouldn't have surprised me if he had ten or twelve in six games. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, Mr. Howard. Hello, Chris. Hello, Go Mr. ahead. Okay. What's up? I'm I'm well. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, so yeah, thank you for spending a few minutes. I just, you know, it's great to catch up with you. I just wanted to find out sort of how are you doing these days and talk a little bit about your career. Well, uh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> um, uh, I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm. Uh, I'm in the uh, eighth, bottom of the seventh or top of the eighth inning of my lifetime. Uh, we, we got a one-run lead. I'm hoping we can. They tie it up. And we play 25 innings. In other words, I'd like to live to be a hundred. But go ahead, Chris. Everything is fine. Good. How much do you enjoy looking back at your life and your career and thinking about some of the things and the people and the games and? And and that part of your life, do you, do you look back on it with as much enjoyment as I hope you do? You know, I, uh, Chris, I really don't dwell that much on my life on my life in baseball. I look at it this way. I said, you know, uh, the two or three things we run kind of a gauntlet. As a player, you're signed, you're traded, you're sold, you're released. You get into the coaching end of it, and I coached for over 20 years in the big leagues. You're hired. There's a pretty good chance somewhere along the way you're going to get fired. But uh, that that goes with the territory. But I I look back and I talk to a lot of my peers that I either played with or coached with, and we're all in kind of an agreement. You know, the two or three things, that has not gone our way in the game of baseball. There's been a thousand great things happen, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and we've met more than a thousand great people inside and outside of baseball. So where's our bitch? Where's our you know we we got none. It's been it's been a, a roller coaster ride, a lot of ups, a lot of downs. But boy, it's been a great it's been a great time in our lifetime. You you were fortunate enough though to play in an era starting in the fifties and through the you know early seventies where it's arguably the greatest era of baseball in terms of talent. I mean, there was overlap from guys who played in the forties who were still around in the fifties. There's certainly an unbelievable amount of great players in the sixties. And it sort of bleeds into those players who made their debut in the late 60s and early 70s. It really was an incredible piece of time for the game itself in terms of the talent, was it not? Well, there's no question. Uh, You know, uh, the salary structure in those days isn't anything like it is today. Uh, But baseball probably 
probably paid a little more money than the NBA or the National Football League or the National at that time. At that time, Bobby paid a little. So as a result, we got we, we got a lot of the great athletes of that moment in baseball assembly because the pay the pay scale was a little higher. But now that the, the it's it's all come come around. Uh, there are all these young people today who are making, uh, making, doing some things on these athletic fields that are simply awe-inspiring. I mean, I'm watching some of these young athletes today run, jump, uh, shoot the basketball, hit, uh, hit the baseball, uh, passing. Uh, I watch a young quarterback at Kansas City. And he comes from pretty good genes. His dad was a uh, was an outstanding major league pitcher, but I mean he's throwing he's throwing a football overhand, throwing a football sidearm, throwing a football underhand, submarine style, and completing passes. Uh, you, you look at uh, LeBruin James and, and some of these athletes playing in the NBA. You look at some of these. Uh, uh, hockey players, you know, you you go from a go from a my era of a Gordie Howe, a Bobby Hall, uh, Jacques Plante, those guys, John Bellabeau, Maurice Richard. You go from there, you go into the Bobby Orr's, then you go to the Gretzky's, then you go to these uh, the, the kid we got. He's not a kid, this young man we got in Washington. Uh, Russian skater, what's his name? Ovechkin? Yes. And then you go to Pittsburgh with Crosby. Mm-hmm. What, what, what we're dealing with in today's world, we're dealing with, well, for different reasons. Better equipment, probably better coaching, more access to film, more access to uh, intel uh, with this computer world we live in. And they're taking advantage of it. Better diets. Uh, What we're dealing with, and I don't debate it with my peers out of the respect, the genuine respect that I have for them. But what we're dealing with today, Chris, uh, we're dealing with bigger, faster, stronger athletes overall. Overall. Now, your, your Hall of Fame players in any sport... Uh, whether it be hockey, whether it be baseball, NFL, NBA, your your Hall of Fame players, they would have played in any era. But the masses, the masses in today's athletic world, they're, they're, they are. They're bigger, faster, and stronger. So, Frank, what was it like to be 21, though? You go to Los Angeles, and you're a Midwestern kid, and it's the first year the Dodgers are in L.A., and you do get a cup of coffee up there. What's it like to be 21 in Los Angeles when baseball is brand new on the West Coast? Well, there again, you're talking about a different environment. In those days, uh, uh, San Diego was a beautiful city, but didn't really have that at that time. The uh, the population count, the growth that it's got now, San Francisco, oh, Marvin, the Paris of the Paris of the United States, and Los Angeles, where all the, the the movie stars and the glamour and all that was there. 
it uh, you know it, it was a great time. It, it was a great time in my life, and it should have been a great time in in uh, in other athletes' lives. So to be twenty one, though, I mean, there's. <laughs> Listen, it's a tough world. Everybody's on a one-year contract if they're on that. Um, you know, in 1960, when you become an everyday player, you win Rookie of the Year. So you must have been paying attention in 58 and 59. Uh, well, you, the, the thing that helped me, I want you to think about something. Now, we're not talking about a, a race of people. We're talking about a, a breed of ball player. Uh, we're talking about the Latin American Politero, the Latin American ball player. Can you imagine playing Clemente, Cepeda, Juan Terrine Pizarro, T.T. Arroyo, the Aluz in the Dominican, uh, got in Cuba before Castro put. Can you imagine how many great baseball players came off those islands? Now, the thing that really helped me, because I was more noted more for being a basketball player than a baseball player at that time, the thing that helped me, I played four years in the winter. played baseball year-round four years. Four, I played four years in Latin America. Um, I played a year in Mexico. I played a year in the Dominican Republic in the wintertime. I played uh, two years in Puerto Rico. The thing that helped me playing year-round is that you 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 learn how to compete, or because if you can't compete and put numbers up, they'll, they'll get you out of there in a hurry. But can you imagine uh, Orlando Zapata playing 18 years in the big league? Louis Tion uh, pitching 18 years. Can you imagine pitching 18 years there? And then playing another 12, 15 years in Latin America. So it's repetition in your skill areas until you reach whatever ability level God has in mind for you. So it will hone your skills. Uh, we wonder why that sure double, possible triple in the right field corner, line drive that you know you can't cut off where you've got to take a little drop step to put you in a running round that might help you cut the ball off 15 or 20 feet back of you. Can you imagine sure double possible triple and that ball's hitting the right field and the great Roberto Clemente take a little <laughs> drop step back, get him in a running round where he cuts the ball off 15 or 20 feet behind him, makes a play, makes a little U-turn, Throws a one-hop strike to second base, and that sure double, possible triple, you're out yeah. going back to the dugout. But they've done it in practice a thousand times, and they've done it under game condition a hundred times. So they're very, very skilled. It, it's, it's just dissipated with that real tough slider down and away. They call it bastard pitches. As a bastard pitch to me, to him, he hits it off the right center field wall for a double or in the right center field seats. Repetition in your skill areas. They, uh, you know, it's uh, th that's the key. 
repeat, repeat, repeat until you either master that particular part of the game or at least brings you up to whatever ability levels you have. Frank, were you aware? It sounds like it sounds like you were astutely aware, and I don't know at what age it might have started early in your career, about the abilities of other players where you're watching other players, it sounds like. And believe me, I know your career as a coach, so your ability to watch and communicate is certainly in play because you were around the game for as long as you were. But did you realize as a young player some of the things you're talking about now? And I don't want to say you were in awe, but you were aware of how good the average baseball player was and then take the next step up where you're watching greatness night in, night out? Well, personally, if I had to do all over again, I would have prepared for a game a little better. I would have paid a little more attention to who's pitching, how, how they pitching me. Now, I finally, didn't, finally did grasp that when I was 27, 28 years old. So not that I wasted four or five years, but I didn't have the years that I should have had had I paid a little more attention to detail. You know, you can talk about uh, you. You let's let's take a guy that just recently passed, undoubtedly one of the greatest, if not the greatest. One of the greatest hitters to ever play the game of baseball. And I worked for him. He was a farm director in, in Atlanta when I was the minor league hitting coordinator, Henry Aaron. Now, Henry Aaron, before he's 25 years old, playing in Milwaukee, playing in Milwaukee, led the National League. Look it up, Chris. I know he led it once. He might have led it twice uh, in, in average, batting average. What, can you look it up real quick? I am. I'm doing it right now. As a matter of fact, and believe me, uh, the before passing... he's 25 years old, one of the crosswinds in County Stadium. Tough, you know. You couldn't defend him. He played chalk line to chalk line. Frank, Take a Frank. Huh? He, he, did it, he did it twice. He led the he led the National League in hitting as a 22 year old and a 25 year old. You see what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Now he led the National League. In, had he spent his entire career in Milwaukee, he'd have probably led it eight or ten times in batting average. But he went to Atlanta Fulton County Stadium and opened up a little bit, give you the outside inch or two of the plate down and away. But two three quarters of the plate in, he's either a bounce that ball, prevailing winds blowing to left field. He really hit that ball off the left field wall or in the left field seats. Changed his style of hitting a little bit to take advantage of the elements. Now, see, that's not only baseball skill. That's baseball acumen. Now, I'll tell you something else about Henry Aaron. If, If they don't have Bill Bruton, who was a great defensive center fielder playing in Milwaukee, Henry Aaron would have been one of the great great center fielders of all time. And it's what a lot of people said. Well, if he was such a great athlete, why wasn't he playing in center? And, and look, Mickey had an, uh, excuse me, Mickey and Willie both had a little bit of an advantage with the New York media and how they perceived and how they were written about. But you're not the first person to tell me Hank Aaron doesn't have to take a back seat to anybody. Not oh, statistically. Oh, five tool player. Yeah. Now the epitome of the five tool player could beat you, glove. Foot speed, bat contact, bat power, and uh, 
Uh, what we don't want? Bad arm. power, foot speed, arm, arm strength. Henry Aaron didn't have a, an outstandingly strong arm like a K-Line or a Clemente, but he was very accurate, very accurate. But then you know the epitome of the five two, and there were more than there were more than just two of them. There were there were. Yastrzemski, five-dual player, K-Line, five-dual player, Clemente, five-dual player, Aaron, five-dual player, Frank Robinson, before he hurt his arm, five-dual player. But the two guys that come to mind uh, as five-dual players are Mickey Mantle and and Willie Mays, or Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle, whatever order you want to put them in. But now to show you where the growth and the development comes in. Now, uh, all the years I coached, I thought the the two, and there were other five dual players, but I thought the two players that uh, epitomized the five dual player of my coaching end would be uh, Barry Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. Now, May's five foot eleven, six foot tall, one hundred and eighty five pounds. Mantle, six foot tall, 205, 210 pounds. You got Bonds at 6'3, 6'4, Griffey at 6'4, 215, 220, 225. They're just bigger and faster and stronger. Better diets, better, you know, better training uh, regimens. Uh, but it was a great era, Chris. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't disagree with what's going on in baseball today, with all the uh, computer technology and everything. I think you're crazy if you don't utilize it. Right, because look, everybody said it's hard. <laughs> the expression has always been, and this started before you started playing. Hard to get there, harder to stay. And you know, I, I mean, yeah, that's true. And I've watched guys, Frank. Quite honestly, they they lazy themselves out of a career. They drink themselves out of careers. Uh, right there again to show you how today's anything. I think is smarter. They take better care of themselves. They they take care, better care of themselves. Uh, they have better diets. Uh, they, they don't have the heavy drinkers. Uh, they, they cleaned up the uh, the narcotics end of it. Uh, they cleaned up the juice end of it through education, personal awareness. All those problems that we've had in baseball have been correct, or most of them have been corrected anyway. So tell me a little bit about a couple of your teammates in Los Angeles. By the way, you you start, you're playing in the Coliseum before they finish up. First four years in the Coliseum. Tell me about that building itself. The Coliseum? Yeah. Well, short left field fence, big uh, home plate ran from the tunnel all the way to the big arches in the center field. But down the left field line, 254 feet with a 40-foot screen. Left center was only 310 with that. St- the screen was still there. Then it went to 420 in dead center field, 390 in right center field, 360 in dead right field, and 300 feet down the line. But you'd have to pull a ball. Uh, you know, within 10 feet of the right field foul line board to be any any trouble. So when you play 81 games in that ballpark, though, can that screw you up a little bit? I've had guys tell me, look, Fenway's a great place to hit, 
as long as you know that it's 81 games maybe of approach is can the coliseum or a building like that sort of screw you up a little bit well no i don't think so i there again it, it, wally moon one of the really great fastball hitters of all time uh, he changed his style he could pull anybody's fastball Pull it. I mean, that's how, how much bad speed he had. But he kind of changed his style of hitting and started using more of the opposite field with that short fence out there. I think he had his best year home run-wise, hitting, hitting about 15 out there. It was about, 15, about 25 doubles. So they take advantage of the, of the, like I said, Aaron took advantage of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Mays took advantage of Candlestick Park because of the currents blowing from home plate to the right field, to right field. Willie Mays could pull anybody, everyone, but he's, they're sharp. They operate a level or two above us, mere mortals. And they're sharp in that, hey, I'm going to stay inside the baseball a little bit. If I hit, hit a ball to, to the right of center field, it's got a chance to go. Are, are you happy that you played in both the National and American League because you got to see different cities and ballparks? Um, you know, back in the day, a lot of guys were one-team guys, or if they stayed in the league without interleague play, you really didn't get a chance to experience the other cities and the well, other ballparks. Well, you see, they're, playing in the American League is probably a little better for me than playing in the National League. Uh, two, two, two very distinct different strike zones. In those days, the American League had the big ballparks. So you had guys that threw four-seam fastballs, riding them upstairs with a curveball to take you back and forth. Fastball, high fastballs, curveball, take you back and forth. National League was a smaller ballpark, sinker fastball down, hard slider down, nothing. Didn't throw you too, many soft, too much soft stuff. Uh, so the American League is probably a little better league for me, Chris, because I was a bit a little better high fastball hitter. So tell me, let, let me ask you about a couple of your teammates. I'll start with Los Angeles, and I do want to ask you about a couple of other guys as well, if you're okay with that. Tell me a little bit about Sandy and watching Sandy Koufax go from being the guy who really, you couldn't put the baseball in his hand every four days, but then all of a sudden you never wanted the baseball out of his hand. He got that good. He had maybe the greatest five-year run in baseball history. Well, I, I've had people ask me, and this is just my opinion. I've had people, if you want to combine sheer velocity with a great curveball, sheer velocity with a great, two guys come to mind in my mind. You, you got Sanford Koufax and you got Noli Ryan, or Noli Ryan, Sanford Koufax, whatever order you want to put them in. <laughs> Now, there have been guys with as good a curveball, Bly Levin, Ernie Brolio, Sam Jones, uh, who else? Uh, uh, been a lot of guys with Camilo Pasquale. A lot of guys with with a curveball as good, but didn't quite have that velocity. Then you had guys that probably threw just as hard, but didn't have that curveball. If you wanted to combine fastball, curveball, Noli Ryan and Sanford Kovacs come to mind. Uh, subject, if they've got command of both pitches, subject is no hitting you every time they go out there. <laughs> what about Sandy Kovacs, the guy? Oh, uh, the word I would use is pr- 
presents, presents. Uh, walk into a room, people are raising cane, can't hear yourself thing. Sanford Kopax walk into a room, you watch it and be a, you can hear a pin drop. And people, somebody all going to say, there's Sandy Kopax, there's Sandy Presence, professional, very professional, very professional. Uh, great game preparation. Oh, that's why I said those guys, uh, they operate a level or two above us. They uh, they not only have great skill, but they utilize that Tom Seaver. Um, talk about a pro's pro. A great work ethic. Uh, could handle a bat for a pitcher. Uh, outstanding command of it of all of his pitches, and made a transition. Made a transition from power pitcher to professional control-type pitcher. You know, some guys can't do that. But but you're talking about guys that uh, they really do. They just, uh, uh, they're a level, they play a level or two above us. What about Drysdale? Give him the baseball every four days, and he's going to pick. You imagine this guy. No, once you look up his record, I think he had eight or ten years where he pitched 280 innings plus. Look it up. I'm looking right now. Let's see. Uh, 314, 315, 321, 308, 273, 282, and right before that, 269. So, yeah, on average, better than 295 for <laughs> Well, are you going to see that today? <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> uh, we, we were playing in uh, Puerto Rico. We go to the finals for the championship. In San Juan Cito Escobar Stadium, Juan Terrine Pizarro, who could get that baseball as a young man from the pitcher's mound to home plate as good as anybody. He told him on velocity. He, he, under that radar gun, threw about 95, 96. I saw Juan Terrine Pizarro beat my guy, our guy, Louis Tion one to nothing in 12 or 13 innings. Now, I get a little of this. Cause probably 30, 35 pitches warming up. 13 innings at 10, uh, 11, 12 pitches an inning. Uh, they probably unloaded 170-plus pitches that night. Now, and neither one of them ever thought about coming out of that game. I'm either going to beat you or I'm not going to beat you. Can you imagine a manager walking out to the mound with Donnie Drysdale hooked up against Bob Gibson and they're going into the 10th inning one-to-one? Can you imagine saying how you feel? You what they tell you, don't you? Yeah, get, get the hell your out. ass out of here. Get the I'm hell out of here. Winner or loser. <laughs> there, there's a story about Warren Spahn and Juan Marichal in the game. That well, that's, and that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, intel is great, but sometimes you you can't, it, it, it will never cede 
taking the human element out of out of a sport out of a sports game or an athletic event. So you're in Los Angeles when there were some guys left, and I don't know what you know. I know that you were an Ohio State basketball player. You chose baseball over basketball. I don't know how big a baseball fan you were growing up, but I'm, I got to ask about the Brooklyn Dodger holdovers. There's Duke Snyder. There's Gil Hodges. Uh, there's a couple other guys. Uh, Johnny Padres. Reese. Yeah, you're around Erskine, those guys. Clem Levine. Uh, uh, Padres. Johnny Padres. Uh, Gil, Gil, and Duke. Uh, you know what they do? They, they create a great family atmosphere for a young guy. They, they they show you the right way to go, where to put your uniform after the game, put it in the bins. We don't throw it on the floor. Your shoes need to be clean, cleats. Put them outside your locker. Your clubhouse people will get to them. They 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 give you a a good professional base to operate by. And you guys had a bunch of young guys. I mean, when you talk about uh, Willie Davis, Maury Wills, yourself, it really was an incredible mix those first few years of young. Well, I'm going to tell you about another guy out there that led the league twice in hitting before he's 25 years old. Tommy Davis. Look him up. Tommy Davis led the league back-to-back years at 23 and 24, 346 right. and 326. Before he's 25. Yeah. Now, if he doesn't break his ankle up in the sand, I was gone. They traded me that winter. I was in the American League at 65. If he didn't break his ankle up in San Francisco when he's 25, probably leads that league six or five or six, seven mm-hmm. times in hitting. Outside, from the right side of the plate, from the right side of the plate, probably the second fastest, or maybe the fastest guy in the National League from home plate to first base. The other guy might run with him would be Julian Javier from the Cardinals, but from home, from the right side of the plate, you know. So, can I give you a piece of information about Tommy Davis? What about him? He's 82 years old today, sir. He's literally yeah, celebrating. Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you, we were on a cruise together. I guess it's been 10 years ago. Had a great, great time visiting. But if he didn't break his ankle, he, uh, he, he could hit more tough two-strike pitches than any guy I've ever seen. You know, we talk about a two-strike approach to hitting. Well, that's... Uh, in 150 years of Major League Baseball history, you can probably count the probably two dozen great two-strike hitters. Most of us, one and two, zero oh and two, we don't operate too well. But Tommy Davis, one of the great two-strike hitters of all time. Williams would be in that category. Who else? Uh, Boggs. When? We draw no question about it. You're right. You're right. But there again, you're talking about skill levels that are well above average and and developed through years and years of of repetition. You know, they asked my old manager Ted Williams, if you had to do all over again, would you do anything different? He said, yes, I'd take more batting practice. Now, who took more batting practice than Ted Williams? But there again, refining 
and honing those skills. Repetition, repetition, repetition. You you actually played for both Gil Hodges and Ted Williams in Washington. I mean, yeah. Can, can, what about, let me ask you about Gil Hodges. Gil Hodges was a teammate. Gil Hodges was Dodger royalty. Then Gil Hodges is your manager after you guys had been teammates. Uh, tell I me about thought I, I, there are a lot of great managers, and I've worked for a lot of great managers, uh, coach for them. Dick Williams, Dallas Green, uh, God, George Bamberger, uh, Dick Williams. Uh, I thought that, that, that they all knew the game of baseball from A to Z and back from Z to A. All their I's were dotted and their T's were crossed. Totally prepared, totally prepared. But I thought the two guys that come to mind that I thought had the greatest peripheral vision and depth perception of a, of a baseball field were Gil Hodges and Dick Williams. I, I thought they saw things. I, I used to say, God damn they, they must have eyes in their ass. Uh, you know, they saw things that uh, we, we'd pick up once a year, if we're lucky, once a season. They pick them up every day. No, no question about it. Now he was a, but but he's a military guy. He, look, he was my dad's favorite player. My dad was born and raised in Brooklyn. I was raised hearing stories about the Brooklyn Dodgers. So Gil Hodges was, and by the way, you couldn't have asked for a more perfect fit because you know the game big picture. When he goes over to the Mets with a very young team, that you know, quite honestly, losing sucks, and that team had been sort of clownish for a while. Can you imagine Gil Hodges walking in there his first spring training to let people know that this isn't funny anymore? We're not here to we're not here to entertain people that well, way. Well, look what he did with the Washington Club. We, there wasn't anything wrong with the Washington Club. We, uh, we had guys that could fundamentally sound, could play. We just didn't have enough of them. That's all. Mm-hmm. Look what he look at the improvement he made in that Washington Club when he went there. What in '65 or '66? When did he go to Washington? So deal? he was there in, I think he was 65. Yeah. 65. Yeah, 1965 is his first year in Washington. Look at, look at his records in Washington. They got better every, every year, year, didn't yep. they? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And the Mets made a brilliant move by getting him over to New York at that point. Well, you know, he, he uh, but you, there again, you're talking about guys that, uh, they, uh, they know what they they just got it, I guess. I don't know. So, what was it like to play for Ted? Oh, really, a, an American icon. He's not only not only a baseball icon. Can you imagine a guy spend five and a half, five and a half prime prime playing years of his career in the United States Naval Marines? World War Two, the Korean War. Can you imagine what he might have done had he had he spent those five and a half years there? But a great patriot, a great patriot. He told me one time. He said, "I said, take all this this baseball stuff and put it in its place." The greatest thrill I've ever got in my life was being a United States Naval Marine. You know he. 
Uh, boy. I, I had a chance to speak to him, and that was sort of towards the end of our conversation. It was the idea that, hey, wearing a baseball uniform was incredible. Um, but it wasn't the greatest uniform he ever wore, is what he told me. Well, I'll tell you, he's an amazing guy. He really is. Amazing man. Light years. Like Auerbach, like Belichick, <laughs> like Lombardi, like uh, oh, uh, Scotty Bowman. Uh, those guys are light in in their careers as managers. They're they're, they're light years ahead of everybody else. They utilize everything they have. Well, as you said, there. Look, here's. Tell me if this is fair. When you get to play Major League Baseball in any era, you're the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. But there is that one percent higher that become the guys that a lot of the people we just talked about, where they're just. You know, you don't want to say they're touched by the gods, but there is something a little bit different about them, and then they usually work on top of that to ensure that they stay. Once you once you taste greatness, I don't know why anybody would want to throw greatness away, so you work harder. It's Not everybody has done it, but the greats of the greats all seem to have that attribute. Oh, they, what they've got, Chris, I, don't, I could probably describe it, but uh, I... But I watch them. They're, they're not only skillful, uh, talented guys, but they're also they're also very smart about what they're doing. Great baseball, great sports acumen, great sports heart, great sports stomach. Fire in their belly. Fire in their belly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How about P. Rose? Now let's let's take this guy. If you had to evaluate him as a young player. You say arm strength probably average, glove probably average, uh, bat power below average, running speed above average as a young player, bad contact. But if you could open up Pete Rose in his mind, in his heart, in his belly, you say this guy is, you, you, when we evaluate 20 to 80, most clubs do. Mm-hmm. 20 to 80, major league average 50, and he would be McGuire Power, Juan Pierre Speed. Clemente's uh, uh, arm. Uh, Clemente's arm, you're right. K Line's arm, mm-hmm. Calavito's arm. Uh, uh, you'd have to give him an 80 and all, and give Pete Rose an 80 and all, mind, heart, and belly. Took his skills to the maximum. Took his baseball skills, but there again, through great work ethic, great work ethic. Uh, Was there a guy or two that that you ended up uh, getting to know? Look, you, you competed in four All-Star games, which is a completely different type of clubhouse, and it wasn't a lot of fraternization in the 50s and certainly in the 60s. But when you got in that room, and believe me, the National League, own the all-star game for a number of years for a number of different reasons what's it like to walk into an all-star room well you yeah, I, I don't know how they vote today i think they use the vote fan favor and um, uh, then they got into an era where i think the managers and coaches put in a vote i don't know how that works uh well to be selected to be selected by your peers uh, to play in all series, it's a thrill. It's like playing in the World Series. I say this. What we do as individuals will never supersede playing on a world championship club. 
to be recognized. And this is America. They love winners. And we play to win. We don't play to lose. We play to win. But uh, to be on a world championship club is, is probably the greatest thrill uh, an athlete can ever experience. And you did. So how much of your career, look, Ernie Banks, Ted Williams, there have been a number of guys who didn't, if they tasted the World Series, they didn't win the World Series. How, how much better do you think most players feel walking away with that memory on top or on the back of the baseball card? I I, I couldn't say. I really I wouldn't know. I, I'm just speaking for myself now. You'll probably get more recognition playing on a world championship club than you'll ever get maybe for being a, a, as an individual. And and that matters to players. There's a certain point. I think it does. Yeah. I think it does. How about that quarterback at New England? Well, he was at New England. Yeah, Tom Brady. He just wants to win. Well, look, I'm telling you, he's 42, 43 years old. He's played on six world championship clubs. And besides his great talent and skill, he's got a great football acumen, great football heart, and a great football belly. Fire in his belly. There's fire in that guy's belly. I mean, uh, what it what it is, Chris, uh, that, that it's now, it goes beyond just skill. It, uh, you certainly got to have ability and skill, but uh, they, they, they've got intangibles that, that make them uh, there again, that let them operate above us mere mortals. When you are, when you're in your prime and you feel good, you're, you're on a good run, does it matter who the pitcher is? I know you have to know what it is they throw. I mean, there are well, times. There, there are times. Look, this game is tough. You, three hits and ten at bats. You're going to the Hall of Fame. So the psychological part of the game, when you're going well, as opposed to when you're not going well. Well, you get into this. I asked Harmon Killebrew one time. Uh, we got to talk about. Him. I said, you know, we, we, we go on those little tears every now and then. Where you're really swinging the bat well, and, and and really moving hard on that baseball, but then somewhere along the line, you, you put in your mind, well, this can't go on forever. And are you what Harmon's answer was? He said, Why can't it? <laughs> you know, I got to thinking about. It. I said, Damn, no wonder this guy is so. He, you know, they think they 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 think it should happen every day. And uh, most of us say, well, I'll do what I can do as long as I can do it. Yeah. Then I'll be back in those two for 22s again. So what kind of disadvantage is it to be six foot seven? What, what's the advantage and what's the disadvantage in baseball to be six foot seven? Well, you, uh, in, in the era that I played, I would be almost be considered kind of freakish. Six foot seven, we got a strike zone as big as my... Uh, Den, my kid, my house, my home. Uh, but uh, you know, you uh, in today's world today, I look like Demi Dimwit, Dimwit against some of these guys. Well, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're again side. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, they got those. I've never seen either one of them play, but they got those uh, two big boys there with the Yankees. Stan uh, and Judge. Yeah. Six foot five, six foot six, two hundred and fifty, sixty pounds. 
and can run, can throw, I mean, uh, can field. You know, they, uh, it's, uh, like I say, it's uh, so talented, so much talent, bigger, faster, and stronger. How, how often did you get knocked down? Were you a guy who got knocked down a lot? You know, that's probably overrated. Certainly, they probably pitch a little more inside than they do today. But it's never, I don't think it's occasionally sure you're going to get flipped. You know, if, if you want to really come up and in on a, on a hitter, all you got to do is either just nip him in there up and in or, or miss up and in. You go under his his lead elbow. Just go throw pitch right under his lead elbow. He'll either put you on the black end there, or put put it in inside off the plate a couple inches. You, 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 we, I don't think he had as much of it as as, as people made out to be. Yeah, it's a story. It, well, look, it happened, but it's a story this many years that's grown. I'm assuming, just like a lot of other things in life. Yeah, the story gets a little bit bigger. All right, let me finish up with this. In your time in the American League, there's Jim Palmer and that group of guys. Um, you know, it, it's an incredible era for Hall of Fame pitchers. Was there a Hall of Fame pitcher that you hit really well? Was there a, a that caliber type guy that you know you hit well? Uh, I don't think he hit those guys too well, Chris. <laughs> yeah. I thought Jimmy, there again, talk about a a very uh, mechanically fluid motion. I thought Jim Palmer at 19 had one of the great moving fastballs mm-hmm. of anybody I had seen. But he offset it with a great, a lot of people don't realize it, had a great curveball. Well, then. You combine velocity with that kind of a breaking ball and that kind of command of that stuff, that's why they're in Cooperstown. So would you know who you hit more home runs off of? Without bragging, Uh, I mean, is there a guy that you know you hit well? uh, That you drove to the ballpark a little bit quicker on the days of the No, I never thought about that. Was there a guy you didn't like facing? I couldn't tell you. I really couldn't. Was there a guy you didn't like facing? Was there a guy in particular? (laughs) Probably, I could probably name you 250 of them. <laughs> well, listen, you did something right, Frank. I mean, Once t- in a while, we touch one off. <laughs> and by the Once way, in a while, we touch one off. When you hit him, you hit him far. Well, what, once in a while. Do you think you ever really hit a baseball 500 feet? Is that such a thing? Oh, there's no question in my okay. mind I did. Okay. So tell me what hitting a 500-foot-plus home run is like. Well, you know, you know you, we didn't have the tape measures in those mm-hmm. days. But you know, uh, and there again, I'm not a, a scientist, but you, you know, they tell you where the ball went and all that. You don't see it. You don't see where they go. You make contact and you, you start hauling ass. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but it is incredible. I'm assuming when you know an outfielder doesn't move, that's when you know you hit a home run, right? When an outfielder. You, who, who sees that as a hitter? You make contact and you're on your way around the base. Well, not in today's game, Frank. They watch everything. They watch the 348 footers. Now you're talking about getting flipped. <laughs> you might get flipped. Can you imagine? Can you imagine digging a firm spot in the batting and in the, in the batter's box, or watching, watching if you click him, 
watching, uh, can you imagine Bobby Gibson? Ooh. <laughs> so here's he, my... He, he, he might put a party in your hair, Chris. <laughs> did, did you ever hit a baseball out of a stadium? Uh, Tiger Stadium in, in left field. You did? Yeah. Yeah, that... <laughs> so you could say you're one of... One of those guys who actually hit a baseball out of the well, building. I think Killebrew, I think Cecil Fielder, I think Mark McGuire, they did it. There have been a lot of great, great strokes from the left side. Mm-hmm. But usually your picture-perfect uh, swings come from left-handed. Williams, Freddie Lynn, Willie McCovey, Willie Stargell. Most of them are left-handed hitters. I thought the, the right-handed hitters that mechanically had great swings. I thought Roy Seavers. Hmm. I thought Mark McGuire. I thought um, Dick Stewart. I thought Dick Stewart had one of the really great swings from the right side. And talking about a guy who hit a baseball a long way. So why, why, are, why are lefties prettier? Why is that? Has I don't know. I don't know. Boy, I thought Freddie Lynn. Can you, how big was Freddie Lynn? Six two maybe, six two maybe. But he probably didn't weigh more than what 190 pounds at yeah. most. All right, let's see what it lists him as. They have Fred Lynn listed at six one 180 pounds. Well, I was gonna say I think he's a little taller. I think he's about six two. Okay. Boy, I never. You know, we played in an old timers game. I thought, man, alive. No effort in his swing. Great bat speed generated from a very smooth setup. So load up, very fluid getting back to the. How can a guy this size hit a baseball that far? I mean, it's all timing, yeah. hand eye coordination, bat speed. Uh, boy, I thought, man, this guy got one of the great swings. Mark Grace had a great yep. swing, I thought. Palmero had a great swing. Uh, These are guys that I saw coach him. You, but, you, um, you seem to have a great respect for the game. So if I ask you, let me, and, and by the way, drop humility for a second. How would you describe your career? Because you got 1,700 hits. You almost hit 400 home runs. And I know you sort of shake it off a little bit. You were honest. You said maybe you should have worked at it a little bit harder. But how do you look back at your career? Uh, there again, like I said earlier, it's been a roller coaster ride, Chris. A lot of ups, a lot of downs. I've been in those two for 22s most of my life. I've also been on a couple little tears. But it's been, you know what? Now, this is America. We play to win. Yeah. But we, but I, to, we don't but, play to lose. We play to win. Can I tell you what I think has happened with your career? And maybe. But, maybe, but anyway. No, but maybe. Enjoy is, it. Enjoy, and I have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the, the men that I've played right. with. I've enjoyed the men that I've played with. I've competed against the world's greatest players. Mm-hmm. And I've played with some of the world's greatest players. It's been a thrill. I think your career, though, has gained uh, sort of maybe maybe it was when wa- baseball came back to Washington. Maybe there were some things. I I really think that your career, and again, this is you're too humble to say, but I think people sort of reassessed a little bit of your career. Um, I I do. I think there's a great respect for what it is you were. Able- and by the way, 
you certainly could have played in the NBA. You certainly could have been a basketball player. Well, I could have maybe in in in, in the late fifties, but I don't know about today. I, I might make a team today in the NBA, but I won't get in too many games. So why did you choose baseball then? I always liked it, playing it. I like playing baseball better than basketball. Which one were you better at? Well, at that time in my life, in the late 50s, I was probably a better basketball player than I was a baseball player. But there again, getting back to those four years I spent in winter ball, Mm -hmm. uh, Dominican Republic, um, Puerto Rico. You know what? I I have a, a lot of friends, and a lot of them are gone now, too. Vic Power, my manager. Felix Mantilla, mm-hmm. Jose Pagan, Felix Torres, uh, got the Alouz, Juan Murray Charles. Uh, I, I have a lot of friends in Latin America. And I told them, I said, you know what, for me, I'm going to be very kind to myself and say I was young and naive. I was just young and dumb. But for me, I, those four years, I learned to speak a secondary language, saw a different culture, experienced a different diet, and I got paid for it. Right. Now, not not the kind of money they're getting today, but it was pretty good money in those days. It was like a college education. Thank you. I'm glad you said it that way because that's the other part of what I think has happened. And I'm going to be now I'll be honest with you. I've been having conversations with baseball players for over 20 years. I've spoken to guys who played in the 1930s, Ernie Coy, Eldon Auker, um, guys who played Virgil Trucks, who played in the 40s into the 50s. I, this is my assessment. This is me. I ha, I've gotten to know a lot of today's players. I've become friendly with a lot of players by covering the game the way that I have. But the, I don't know if they've led a life that 30 years from now, it'll be overly interesting to talk to them. And, and it's not a knock, but I think whether it's, and I'm not, whether it's gated communities, whether it's multi-year contracts, whether it's sort of playing a little bit with your head down, not doing four years in the Dominican or Cuba or Puerto Rico and not having the, the 24 minor league teams where somebody's looking to get your job every year because you're on a one-year contract. This is not disparaging, but I don't think they're going to be as interesting to speak to as guys who played in your era, the era before, maybe even into the 70s and 80s. I, I, I don't think they've lived the life. I, I really don't, Frank. I'm not sure if they've lived the same oh, life. Well, Henry Aaron, Wade Boggs, Don Mattingly, uh, uh, Willie Mays, Reggie Jackson, they all played They all played winter ball. If it's good enough for them, it certainly <laughs> should be good enough for us. <laughs> For everybody. Well, listen. You got it. All right, Frank, you, I really, really appreciated this. As I said, your career as a coach, we didn't even talk about it, but congratulations for wanting to give back to the game, too. I'll well, I'm going to give you a little, uh, give you a little advice yeah. here now from an economic standpoint. Sure. You hit them on the barrel of the bat, you're going to make a ton of money. You hit them down there on the handle where I used to hit too many of them, you'll get released. So don't hit them off the handle. Hit them off the end of the bat. Let's barrel them up. Frank, listen, All you're right, a treasure. Yeah, Thank bye you very bye. much. Have a bye really good bye. day, Frank. Thank you. Listen, I'm going to tell you, D.C. is a fantastic 